Hi, John here again and welcome back to Life in the Wilderness. I've skipped ahead this week quite a few chapters to chapter 32. Uh, in the interim, there's loads of interesting liturgical information. But for our purposes, which are particularly about focusing on Moses the leader, this is the next interesting bit. Um, who knows, maybe the next series I do of podcasts will be on liturgical practices in the tabernacle period, but for now we'll tiptoe quietly past all that. So as we come to chapter 32, there's so much in this passage, I could do a series on this incident alone. So perhaps the most helpful way to tackle it is just to look at three main characters in the story and look at what they're doing and their their reactions. So I want to talk about the people and think about what exactly is their sin. I want to think about Moses and what is his reaction to the people's sin. And I want to talk about God and his reaction to Moses. So that's where we're going, but I've got to begin before I do that with Aaron. What a plonker, what an idiot. He's been through all that Moses has done. He's been his right-hand man. He's seen miracle after miracle. And yet, when the people ask him to produce a god for them, he's so quick to oblige, apparently. Well, I don't want to let him off the hook... He is a plonker, but maybe there are a couple of clues in the Hebrew text which are hidden in the English, which might at least slightly mitigate his behaviour. In verse 1, the word which the NIV translates gathered round Aaron, when they see Moses is so long in coming, they gather round Aaron, that word could equally mean they gathered against him. And if that's the translation intended, we, we've clearly got a very different situation there. It's a situation of threat and rebellion and anarchy. And if that is true, maybe as well in verse 5, um, there's a textual variant which doesn't mean that Aaron saw the calf that he'd made. It means he was afraid of it. Uh, a textual variant really means that we have some early versions of the text which have usually an odd letter which is different in the Hebrew but, but which give a very different reading. So we see Moses being scared and browbeaten by the crowd and then afraid. Maybe perhaps he realised that like Dr Frankenstein, he'd gone too far. He's created a monster here. And maybe his command in... Uh, I can't find it. His command in verse 5, again, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, not to the calf, um, 
is an attempt to redress the balance a bit. So if those two uh, textual matters are in fact helpful, we see Aaron not as an evil plotter against his brother, but just as a weak man unable to stand up for Yahweh without his brother with him, a man more frightened of people than of God. And that, uh, as we've said before, is a disastrous thing for any leader. So what's behind the people's rebellion? What are they doing here? Well, how long have you got? It begins with good old-fashioned impatience. Where has Moses got to? And so much sin comes from our inability to just trust God and hold on, to, to take matters into our own hands. Then also, I think they want a God they can see. And behind uh, so much superstition and idolatry is the desire to have something physical for your God or in more refined situations to represent your God or, or portray him in some way. And uh, even in the Christian faith, that can be true. It's hard to follow a God you can't see. And uh, I don't know about you, but if I ask you to shut your eyes and visualise God, you'll come up with uh, maybe the face of Jesus, maybe the God of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, or or uh, of some work of art or something like that. But we, we tend to want to see our God. And it's even harder if we rarely ever see anything that he's done. So we get to the place, if we're not careful, where we can't pray without a crucifix or an icon or something. Uh, not bad in themselves, but only if they point to the living God who we know and understand can't be seen and touched. Then thirdly, look at their lack of respect for the leadership, this fellow Moses. Not really a good way to speak about someone who, who's not just your leader, but who has quite literally set you free. There's a rewriting of history later on. In fact, it's not the Moses at all that they've seen and known, but it's the calf who has brought them out of Egypt. Very interesting and very stupid to our mind way of uh, looking at that. Now calf worship of course was not uncommon. They would have encountered it during their time in Egypt as the god Apis was depicted in the form of a calf or bull and when they get to Canaan they're going to see it again because Baal is sometimes worshipped in that form as well. But I think there's almost certainly something else going on here. And maybe this is a reference backwards from a later period in Israel's history 
at the division of the kingdom when Jeroboam sets up two rival sanctuaries to the Jerusalem temple in Bethel and Dan in the northern kingdom. And of course those sanctuaries and the idols within them are roundly condemned. So maybe you've got a sort of precedent here um, and uh, although this passage is probably a J passage, therefore um, around about 950,000 BC, it looks like you've got stuff um, which is uh, kind of reading back and condemning this kind of idolatry which Jeroboam has done. So maybe some stuff was added to the J text maybe a hundred years later once the golden calves had been set up and become established. So I think there's a sort of warning here to Israel, whatever you do, don't worship calves, um, as our history is later to uh, confirm for us. Then, of course, you've got this motif of uh, what is meant to be a festival to the Lord, verse 5, but which actually consisted of eating and drinking and revelry, all of which is a rather coy way of saying it's a massive orgy of sex and drugs and rock and roll. Um, you've almost certainly got alcohol involved there, and some commentators suggest as well that there were various other plant-based herbs which uh, the people might consume in, in different ways in uh, such a situation. Uh, and uh, you've got a reference to dancing in verse 19, which from Moses' reaction is almost certainly a very different kind of dancing from that of Miriam, in chapter 15, which is about celebrating Yahweh's victory at the Red Sea and with which Moses seems to have had no problem with. So I think revelry is a bit of an understatement here. You've got a right on orgy. So behind all these things, I think what we've got going on is a kind of mob dynamic which is just a bit bored, really, and wants to create some mischief, takes things into its own hands, gets leaders who do what we want, and end up smashed out of our heads. And that's an awful picture of what happens when ignorant and selfish people get their own way, with no understanding at all of what's really at stake, or of the consequences and so bring disaster on themselves. And let me say at this point, I'm not in any way referring to Brexit with that statement. So how does Moses react to this mess? A, a complex set of reactions actually, both from Moses and also from God interweaved, interwoven, sorry, in these verses. Both begin with anger. God wants to start again, as of course he has already done once in the days of Noah. So it's quite possible that he could have done that. And Moses too is clearly livid 
as in verse 22, Aaron has to tell him not to be angry, although I'm guessing that his completely blame-filled, oh, the people made me do it, and clearly daft account of what happened, I threw the gold in the fire and out popped this god, um, my guess is that those things might well have made Moses more angry, not less. But alongside Moses' anger, there is still a deep love for the people, such that he refuses God's offer to wipe them out and start again with him, in verse 10. And also, later on in verse 32, he expresses a desire, uh, fascinatingly, for penal substitution of the kind that so many people don't like. Uh, in the New Testament as a means of atonement. Punish me, let me take their punishment um, instead of them. Something which uh, some of us believe that Jesus said to his father as well. It's interesting that as he pleads for the life of the nation, in the paragraph from 11 to 14, he appeals to two things. First of all, he appeals to God's reputation. What will the Egyptians think when they find out that you have destroyed your own people? What will that make them think about you? God's reputation and God's promises. What about that stuff that you said to the patriarchs? Was all that worth nothing? And again, we see Moses as the exemplary leader rightly angry with the people recognizing that they deserve punishment but willing to take it for them if only God will give them another chance something quite profound there I think about leadership and sin so how does God react to all this thirdly well we've seen his initial anger but we see that he changes his mind because of Moses' intercession and not for the first time and not for the last. Personally, I really can't see how Christians can uh, say that stuff about, you know, when we pray it never changes God's mind, it just changes ours because we get a clearer view of God's will and submit to it. Um, God changes his mind again and again in the Old Testament and he does so because of the intercession of his people. Uh, otherwise, I think, what is the point of intercession as opposed to other forms of prayer like contemplation and so on? Why do we spend time whenever we gather to worship praying that God will be active in the world uh, why don't we just sit there contemplating God and, and allowing our wills to be shaped by him prayer may well do things to me and, and uh, so it should but if it never does anything to God what ultimately is the point of that but just because he won't destroy the people doesn't mean he won't punish. And in the bloodbath which follows, 
he does it in two interesting ways. Now, first of all, is the motif in verse 20 of making them grind up the gold that the calf's made from and drink it. Moses demonstrates violently that the covenant has been broken. I don't think the breaking of the two tablets is uh, something he does in a fit of rage. I think it's a symbolic action which says the deal's off because of what you've done. But then this strange punishment of making them drink the golden calf. And I think there are two possible explanations for this and I quite like the second one. The first one, if you go through to Numbers chapter 5, a, a, a section which we won't be covering in this series, I'm sad to say, but in, in Numbers 5 you get this idea of the water of cursing. And basically, do you want to know if your wife has been playing away or not? Well, you take her to the priest and you make her drink water with dust from the floor in it and make her swear an oath that uh, she has been faithful to you. And if she's lying, the water of cursing which she's drunk will cause miscarriage and ultimate infertility. An interesting idea, however, to be honest, not a motive, uh, not a motif which appears anywhere else, really. So it's not a big deal in the Old Testament, but there may be some sort of reference there uh, to that. And this was a symbolic action which was showing God's cursing on the people because of their idolatry. The more likely explanation, I think is that this is a way of permanently removing temptation. It's a dramatic action which will stop them from even thinking about doing this again because the next time they see this gold, it will be down the toilet mixed up with their poo. And I don't know about you, but that would really put me off trying to harvest it and reuse it in any way. And sometimes it's good to take action which removes temptation, an idea introduced dramatically by Jesus, of course, in Mark chapter 9. But then that isn't enough. It isn't enough to remove the temptation and presumably at God's command Moses invites those who want to remain faithful to join in purging the nation of those who don't. And the Levites respond, thus earning themselves a special place in the worship of Yahweh. I think, uh, again, we've got a bit of an etiology here. How did the Levites come to uh, be so important in worship? Well, because back in the wilderness... They were the only ones who stood with Moses. Although presumably anyone apart from the Levites could have resolved at that point to join Moses and show some sign of repentance. Finally, we see Moses interceding again, but 
an even more terrible punishment is threatened in those innocent sounding words in verse 34 my angel will go before you but we'll explore that next time well that's a quick nip through a very complex chapter what's the take-homes well i think there's stuff here for leaders about how we deal decisively but compassionately with sin I think it's about how we love those who have sinned against the God whom we love even more. But it's also, I think, about not giving in to the daft ideas of uninformed people. It's about failing to challenge ignorance and ungodliness and going along with what everybody wants for a quiet life. I suspect that's a major issue for many, many church leaders. Secondly, I think there's stuff here for the people. Evil ideas lead to evil actions. It's not the first time in the Old Testament we're going to see sin resulting from someone who is basically bored. And evil actions will lead to punishment inevitably in this life or the next and there's stuff here about God long-suffering but never tolerant sin will bring punishment as sure as night follows day but always at least until Jesus returns there's a second chance and it's great to know that Jesus our high priest like Moses intercedes for us.